0: broadcasting live from the pro business channel studios in atlanta georgia it's time for capital club radio brought to you by flock specialty finance please welcome your host chairman and ceo michael flock good morning and uh welcome to capital club radio we're delighted and honored today to have Uh, A good friend of mine, actually, and a leader in the uh, consumer credit analytics uh, segment with us, Dr. Jennifer Priestley, Ph.D., professor of applied statistics and data science at the Kennesaw State University, where she's director of the Center for Statistics and Analytical Services. Jennifer oversees the Ph.D. program in advanced analytics and data science and teaches courses in applied statistics at the undergraduate, master's, and Ph.D. levels. Uh, prior to receiving a Ph.D. in statistics, she worked in the financial services industry for 11 years, including positions at Visa, uh, Europe in London, MasterCard, as well as AT&T Universal Card and Anderson Consulting. She earned an MBA from Penn State and a BS from Georgia Tech. Jennifer, welcome and thank you so much for coming. You've got such a great life story. I hope somebody I can write your biography. It's it's fascinating, but let's start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about yourself and as a young person, kind of what were your dreams and did you ever, as a young person, see yourself teaching applied, you know, statistics and uh, data science?
1: Sure. So, I think I can say with 100% confidence that uh, as a young child, I did not envision myself uh, being a professor of statistics. Um, to be honest, I don't know that uh, that really manifested itself until fairly late in my career. Um, you had highlighted a little bit about my my background prior to coming into academia. I did work for 11 years in the private sector, and now I've been in academia for 11 years. I should probably highlight the fact that I started working when I was six six no just kidding
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> well cleaning up your room or, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it just makes me sound very old okay um, no but you know I always did when I was uh, much younger I always did think that at some point I would probably find myself in the teaching profession okay in some capacity I just didn't know what form that would take uh, so I'm I'm honored now to refer to myself as a teacher
0: okay and uh, but what's interesting too is you started out though in business in, I in did. the credit world, uh, I did. you know, with Visa, Mastercard. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how was the transition going mm-hmm. from business to academia, and why mm-hmm. did you do that? Yeah. Why, did you not like the corporate world, right.
1: or right? No, I actually loved what I was doing. To be honest, um, I did have about a million frequent flyer miles before I was thirty. A million
0: uh, before you're I, 30? I did. How, how, I did. How does that happen?
1: Well, so when I, after I finished my, my MBA, I went to work for AT&T right. uh, and Universal then card. transitioned yeah. to the credit card side of AT&T. Um, eventually went to work for MasterCard um, in New York and had to travel around the country working with different banks uh, as they were part of the MasterCard portfolio. And then eventually found myself at Accenture and... Uh, Did an immense amount of travel when I was at Accenture, Mm -hmm. um, flying all over the place, going to clients, um, and then, obviously, eventually went to work for Visa in Europe. Um, Visa, obviously, being based in San Francisco, I made a lot of trips from London to San Francisco um, and back, Uh, and most of my clients were either in um, Scotland or Ireland or Belgium, and so did a lot of travel um, at that stage in my career. And ultimately, um, my husband and I just got to a point where we thought if we were going to to, you know, eventually transition to having children and having mm-hmm. a family. Mm-hmm. It just didn't seem to be the right lifestyle for that. So that ultimately was the catalyst to transition to doing something different. Okay. And uh, and so I was fortunate to be married to somebody who said, sure, we want to lose half of our household income. Let's make it happen. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I retired right. and I pulled out my blue jeans and my backpack at the age of 32 <laughs> uh-huh. and went back and got my PhD.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So, so uh, how was the transition? Hmm. Um, I mean, because it's so, so different being yeah. in a, a, a giant company like Visa or Mastercard, yeah. and right. in business going to a world of professors and term yeah. papers and PhDs yeah. and all that good stuff. So
1: sure. So uh, I think the the biggest um, sort of epiphany or learning that I've had is that uh, you can't substitute practical experience for theory. When you're standing in front of a group um, of students, right, particularly right. undergraduates, right. So there's there's certainly something I think. Um, Um, important about being able to stand up in front of a group of students and say, well, I understand this is what you're reading in your textbook, but let me tell you how this actually works in the real world. Okay. Uh, So, you know, they say that all battle plans work until you meet the enemy for the first time, right? Right. (laughs) So I can tell you that academic theory is great and I think forms an important foundation for basic decision-making, but ultimately uh, there's something that is uh, irreplaceable about being able to explain in practice how things work. me tell you let me tell you how this stuff actually works in practice right i think it also gives you an immense amount of credibility with the students when you can say you know what i've actually done this in practice Mm -hmm. so let me tell you how you actually translate data into meaningful information uh, when you're under the gun and you've got to get something out to a client and sometimes uh you know you don't want to let the better become the enemy of the good
0: so does the practical experience make the theory more credible no question okay
1: No question. So, there is
0: a connection here between real world and academia. I
1: I believe there is. That's Um, cool, because most people
0: don't think there is.
1: Well, in retrospect, I'm not sure how you can be an effective professor without actually having done some of this stuff in practice. Right. Right? I mean, there's certainly importance to understanding the theory, but ultimately, if you can't explain how it works uh, in the real world, um, I I think it makes it much more difficult for the students to appreciate, uh, you know, why you're going through all this with them.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So, in other words, could we say that the practical experience almost is like our da- are, are data points that support the theory and the principles that they're studying?
1: Right. No, I think that's that's spot on. Okay. In fact, I think one of the things that's made um, Kennesaw State so uh, successful in this space, in this analytics space, is the fact that uh, every professor who is involved in the analytics program has had. Substantive professional experience outside of academia. Uh-huh. Uh and so my background obviously is in predominantly consumer finance and in risk. Right, right. Uh, but we have individuals who have substantive experience working in um hospitals, in the medical space, um, in manufacturing, engineering, uh, marketing, pretty much every vertical, every domain, every um discipline vertical. Mm-hmm. And they're able to bring all those experiences into the classroom. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: That's exciting. So along the way, in your practical experience, uh, could you give our listeners some examples of some adverse circumstances you found yourself in, some challenges, some obstacles to getting to where you wanted to go?
1: Sure. So uh, I think one of the biggest um, differences between what happens in theory in the classroom and what actually happens uh, in the real world is that, you know, sometimes you just have to bring a project to fruition and it's just good enough. Right. So if you've got a client deadline and you've got to get something out, uh, you can't ultimately bring that to its final theoretical conclusion. Right. Sometimes uh, you just have to get it to 90 percent and you deliver what you have uh and you just make the best of of what you've been able to put together in the time frame that you've been able to put together um, versus. You know, sometimes in academia, people mm-hmm. drag things out and, mm-hmm. and they're willing to spend, uh, you know, 80% of the time getting that last 20%. And you can't always do that when you're under the gun with a client.
0: That's interesting. So, sometimes, no matter how much data you have, you're saying it may never be completely enough. And so, you, at some point, you have to make a conclusion and there's some risk sometimes in those conclusions.
1: Right. Sometimes you have to just draw a line in the sand and say, I'm just going to do the best I can with what I've got. Okay. Right.
0: That's interesting. So, so data isn't always as pure. The, at least the conclusions you gather from data aren't always as pure as you may want them to be.
1: Uh, they never are. Okay. <laughs> right.
0: All right. Well, this kind of gets to to something else. We're very interested in how you're building this center, uh, you know, for uh, applied statistics and data sciences at Kennesaw. What is your vision sure. for the center? Sure. And um, you know, how are you implementing that? Going forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the Center for Statistics and Analytical Services at Kennesaw State uh, serves a very important role both internally within the university as well as externally to the business community, not just in Atlanta, but but regionally as well. Um, so let's start with the internal, bu- internal community within the university. So by way of context, Kennesaw State has 35,000 students. Um, we have several thousand faculty And uh, all of those faculty have publication requirements. Um, We have a a huge portfolio of grants and uh, contracts and um, all kinds of projects where we are delivering to the NIH and to the NSF and and then obviously to the local business community. Um, All of those faculty have very strong publication requirements and research requirements. Um, And most of those faculty also have PhD students and master's students who are working with them. the Center for Statistics and Analytical Services was really developed partially to help those faculty fulfill all of their analytical needs. Mm -hmm. Um, So somebody may be a subject matter expert in, say, political science, but they're not a subject matter expert in doing statistical analysis or building prediction models. And so that's where we come in. Um, And we will help these professors translate this data into information to support their grants or their projects or their research. Um, We also work very closely with the PhD programs, uh, as well as the master programs supporting those students. More importantly, though, which I think really gets to your question, is how we work with the local business community. So, that's really our second constituency. Okay. So, the center um was chartered in part to support the needs of, like I said, the business community, um, both within the Atlanta area as well as regionally. We have companies um, who contact us almost on a daily basis um, that kind of fall into one of two categories. The first is um, we have uh, too much work and not enough people. Okay. Um, Uh, And uh, this really is a manifestation of the fact that there's a huge talent gap for people that have deep analytical skills. Uh, So we have um, um, this, this, huge gap between uh, the amount of of data and um, you know companies all across the spectrum who are are pulling in structured and unstructured data and pulling that data in is fairly straightforward but then translating that data into something that is meaningful that actually can support the decision-making process and support the objectives of the company um, that's hard mm-hmm. and that really is why we're seeing this huge talent gap mm-hmm. right and so our st- students really sit at that intersection of mathematics and statistics and computer science, and they serve uh, partially as an extension of these teams for these companies all across the area. Again, whether you're talking about consumer finance, or you're talking about um, risk and insurance, or you know, epidemi- epidemiology and healthcare, engineering, manufacturing, retail, uh, we have almost an unlimited number of companies who are coming to us and they're saying, we just don't have enough people who mm-hmm. can help us mm-hmm. translate all of this data Data from Twitter and from social media and from Facebook, as well as all this transaction data that's coming in and help us improve our decision-making process. And so our students um, really help fill some of those gaps for these companies. Secondarily, we have companies who come to us and it's not so much a body shop issue. It's really more of a, I've got all this data and I just, I don't even know what the right question is. Right. I don't even, I don't even know where to start. Uh, can you help us uh, take a look at, at what we've got and what our pain points are and what our objectives are and help us articulate and establish what our questions should be? Yep. And then once we've established the questions, can you then help us with the technical skills, again, to translate this massive amount of data into information to help us improve our our decision-making in our business?
0: You know, I would think one of your challenges might be finding the students that have both the capability of doing the the data analytics the deep technical modeling and the uh, kind of intuitive uh, analytics to draw the conclusions from the data right is, is that possible to have in the same person
1: uh yeah so it's actually an excellent question um and so if i could kind of um frame it uh really from an academic perspective we've got students who are incredibly strong uh technically right um who tend to come out of the sciences right computer science and mathematics physics uh and engineering and and these, there's no question that these students can program and their, yep. their math is unquestionable. Um, but sometimes those students really struggle with the ability to then translate what they've done back into the context of the original business question, right? And I tell my students this all the time. Nobody cares that you just did 15 <laughs> weeks of mathematical calisthenics. Right. They want to understand why what you've done is relevant to their business problem, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so you have to be able to now put this into, you know, dare I say, PowerPoint presentation. Yep. You have to now put this into some type of communication that somebody who doesn't have your technical skills can ultimately understand, and and they can understand why and how this affects their bottom line, and and so what what we found uh, certainly within the context of the center and and more broadly within the context of the university is that it's a lot easier to to help a a, a science student. Learn the, the importance of business acumen and the importance of translation and the importance of interpretation and communication. It's a lot easier to help that student develop those skills than it is to take. Um, a, a traditional business school student who ha- who ultimately does have that intuitive um, kind of wider aperture in terms of understanding the business question, and then try to teach that student the theoretical mathematics and the programming that they need ultimately uh, to be able to accomplish these objectives.
0: That's exactly my point, because right. I've seen it just in our industry in specialty finance, where we've got uh, talented people either on our team or in our customers' teams who are really good technically, but then trying to make decisions from that data is much more difficult. And trying to communicate that data, let's right. say to investors, right? Uh, it's much more difficult to find those same skills in the same person. Right. And
1: uh, no, so, you know, your, your point is well-made and that's something that we've been very cognizant of um, as we've developed all of our analytics programs at KSU. Um, specifically when we launched all of our analytics programs in 2006, we did something really strange for a university, uh, we went to the business community, and we said, you know, this is something that we're thinking about. And, and back in the um, the wilds of 2006, back in the old days, uh, you know, nobody had heard about this term, data science. Right. And so, you know, I don't even know that we were necessarily using the right terms at that point. But we did sit down with with many of the business leaders in and around the Atlanta area, and we said, you know, look, we we've got this idea um, related to um, you know translating data into information. Right. And it doesn't fit neatly into mathematics and it doesn't necessarily fit neatly into statistics. It doesn't necessarily fit neatly into the business school. But this is what we're thinking about. Um, can you bring us your job ads? Can you sit down with us? Tell us what your pain points are. Help us understand uh, if you if we were going to start producing uh students who had a very specific set of skills, um, you know, what what are you looking for? Mm-hmm. How can we help close your your talent gaps? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um and ultimately we are a public university. Yep. We are funded by the taxpayers of the state of Georgia. We are funded by the business community mm-hmm. of the state of Georgia mm-hmm. through tax revenue. We have a fiduciary responsibility back to the state right. to produce uh, talent and to produce graduates who have not just employable skills but skills ultimately that are going to help make Georgia more competitive. and so when we were first launching our analytics programs back in 2006, we brought the business community up to the university and we sat them in the conference room and mm-hmm. we filled out whiteboards mm-hmm. and we ultimately built our curriculum mm-hmm. from those conversations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's been wildly successful we have a hundred percent placement. Mm-hmm. Um, at the undergraduate and master's level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we haven't graduated any PhDs yet because the program is still fairly nascent. We're only in our third year. Mm-hmm. Um, but we fully anticipate that, you know, yep. again, we're going to have 100% placement of those guys as well. Right. Um, and in large part, that's because we, we started with the mentality of trying to ensure that we were working with the business constituency of the region, uh, and of the state. Uh, to make sure that the students that were coming out were going to be employable and could add value. Mm -hmm.
0: So you got a PhD in applied statistics. Does the term applied statistics, does does this mean essentially what we've been talking about, meaning using the data to apply it to a situation or an opportunity to actually use the statistics of the data? Is that?
1: Right. So I think that that adjective applied is critical. Uh-huh. I mean, there's a big difference between a theoretical statistician and an applied statistician. Okay. Um, you know, the theoretical statistics will will always have a role within universities. There's no question. And and we will have a need for theoretical statisticians. But ultimately, uh, you know, the, the number of theoretical statisticians we need is pretty small. Yep. Um, what we really need is applied statisticians. And, mm-hmm. and when we use that word applied, you know, again, really what we're talking about is the uh, that intersection of statistics and mathematics and computer science and and people who can actually extract, transport, load data from all different sources, Um, people who can feel comfortable working with structured data and unstructured data, who can work with a variety of different programming languages, Mm -hmm. um, who ultimately can analyze that data and use it for the purposes of improved decision-making. And back to your point, they also have to understand how to communicate, right? How to translate those results into something meaningful, Yep. So, let me give you a specific example. So, I, I teach this one class um, that deals with credit, a lot of credit data. Yep. So, we have about 17 million cardholders, I suppose. Um, it's all been cleansed of any personal identifiable information. So, we don't know who these people are. Um, but ultimately, we have about 17 million cardholders, and we have about 400 to 500 pieces of information on each person. Mm-hmm. So, if you can imagine, that's a matrix of about 17 million by 500. Mm-hmm. Um, so, by today's standards, I'm not sure that Qualifies as big data, but it's pretty substantive for, um, for an academic in-class, um, teaching data set. So in any event, these students have to go through the process um, over a course of 12-15 weeks of really doing the equivalent of building FICO scores, right? So they're building risk models, um trying to determine the probability of default, uh and then ultimately they have to find um the most profitable customer segment um based upon this um now found probability of default. And uh we have students who come back and they'll say, "Hey, I've been op- I've been able to optimize the model and it only takes me 250 predictors." Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, I shrug and I say, so dude, nobody can operationalize that. <laughs> right, That's right. not operationalizable, right? You right. need to get that down to four. Right, Give me four pieces of information right. that we can use. Right. Uh, and that ultimately mathematically suboptimizes the model, right. but ultimately it makes it monetizable. Right. And it, and it it allows the client to actually put something into practice that they can use in business.
0: And see, I venture to guess, had you not had that business experience at Visa and MasterCard or at Universal, I wonder if you would have been able to know
1: that. It, you know, it's an excellent point. I, I don't think that I would have or yeah. certainly, you know, I would have been in a position where I didn't know what I didn't know. Yep. Right. Yep,
0: exactly. You didn't know what questions to ask. Right. And uh, I love one of the quotes that uh, I, I read from you in the Atlanta Business Chronicle. They've done several articles on you over the last couple of years. And I was reading them over the weekend. Uh, You said companies tend to be very data rich. Correct. And information poor. Correct. Data is inexpensive and easy to capture and store, but translating it into meaningful information, that's where our center at Kennesaw comes in. Right. So is that the kind of the core principle or core goal of the center?
1: Yeah, no question. So... You know, to, and, and that point is, is valid today as it was um, at the time that, um, that it came in the Atlanta Business Chronicle. And, you know, certainly anybody that's involved in data science and advanced analytics can probably speak to that point as well. The idea here is that, uh, you know, again, data is cheap and easy to capture. You know, anybody today with some modicum of programming experience can go download literally millions of tweets. Right. Yep. It, it it doesn't take a lot of effort mm-hmm. to go and mm-hmm. scrape a bunch of stuff off of Twitter and scrape a bunch of stuff um off of Yelp or or off of any um form of social media. That's easy. But then figuring out what to do with it once you've got it, yep. you know, that's hard, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and that's where that combination of technical skills combined with um some domain expertise and ultimately understanding how to uh, you know kind of write the story. Uh, you know, all those skills come together, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's hard.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's talk about a, a very specific and controversial example sure. of how you applied this to uh, a big issue in our industry, which are payday loans. Sure. And I think it was a few years ago that um, the KSU study, which was commissioned by the Consumer Credit Research Foundation that mm-hmm. you uh, kind of undertook. Right. Uh, had some incredibly surprising conclusions based on the data right. and the analytics that that you did over. Uh, I, I guess the key question was, are payday loans beneficial to, uh, subprime consumers or not? Was sure. that the primary question? And could you kind of summarize those conclusions and how you got there yeah. statistically? Because sure. it's, it, it shocked a lot of people because we always hear about the bad guys in yeah. payday loans. We don't know, uh, you know, about some of the, the good things that happen with payday loans sure. and your conclusions were quite surprising. Could you share that with our listeners?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So the quick um, background to this is um, I had actually done uh, several studies for several different subprime companies, subprime lenders, um, not just uh, in the Atlanta area, but also kind of regionally and nationally. And and one day I'm sitting in my office and I got a call from somebody from the Consumer Credit Research Foundation. They said, hey, you know, we've had an opportunity to look at some of your work and we have uh, this this massive data set and we're having problems finding somebody who can work with this type of data. Uh, and we have a basic research question and would like for you to take a look at the data and see if you can address the research question. So, um, their, their data sets, you know, like I said, were, were, were pretty massive, but they were analogous to the data sets that I was using for the purposes of teaching that, that I was just making reference to with the 17 million observations and the four to 500 variables. Um, so they had multiple data sets over four years, um, that were predominantly from exper a combination of Experian, and uh, payday lending transaction data. And so in total, I think I received um, somewhere between 10 to 12 files. And each one of these files had several million um, data points in it. Um, and again, several hundred variables. So we're not talking about small data sets. Um, and these data sets were coming in, in different formats. Uh, and so already you've got sort of a a big data challenge in the sense that you have a massive amount of data, albeit structured, that's coming in in multiple forms. So before we can even start to get to the interesting parts about, uh, you know, the payday loans and and how do rollovers affect people's um, credit scores? You know, we had to go through several weeks of just. Going through the process of extracting, transporting, loading, merging, cleaning, prepping, uh, and that took an immense amount of, of effort and time. Once we got the data loaded and we were able to get it into um, a format where it was a master file, uh, then uh we really had the the core question was how does payday rollovers affect somebody's financial ecosystem? right? That effectively was the question. And, and to be honest, um, at the time that the question was posed to me, it wasn't even necessarily posed um, from the standpoint of, hey, does this help? Hey, does this hurt? Right. It was really positioned to me much more objectively, what is the relationship? Okay. Right. And so, uh, you know, as an applied statistician and, and, uh, and a data scientist, I really approached it from the standpoint of X's and Y's. Uh, I really um, didn't have any preconceived notions Mm -hmm. um, in terms of what I was going to find. Like I said, I was really just going into this with X's and Y's. And ultimately what I found is that for the lowest end of the credit spectrum, so we're talking about people who have FICO scores, um, it was actually Vantage scores, which Mm -hmm. are kind of analogous to FICO. Um, Vantage scores that were um, sub 600. Um, So, you know, these are people that oftentimes can't put their hands on $17, right? Um, You know, these are the lowest end of the credit spectrum. Um, who really are struggling to uh, to to find um, financial resources? So, in any event, at the lowest end of the credit spectrum, I found that um, rollovers of payday loans and access to payday loans um, was was actually net positive, um, not substantively positive. I mean, not not in the sense that it's going to take their their vantage scores from you know six hundred to eight hundred, but ultimately, um, importantly, not negative. Uh, and uh, net positive.
0: You mean the, the effect of the rollovers the eff- on the cash flow?
1: Of- the effect of the rollover on the change in Vantage score. Okay. So if you look at Vantage score, again, sort of a um, an analogous... Um, um, measurement, form. yeah, uh, relative to something like a FICO score. Uh, if you look at somebody's vantage score from, say, 2006 to 2007, right? So how did it change? And then how did, the presence of um, rollovers impact that? Was that impact positive or was that impact negative? And what I found was that it was positive that if somebody had access to protracted rollovers from 2006 to 2007, and then separately from 2008 to 2009, that effect was net positive. Uh, and again, you know, I came to this... Um, with a completely blank slate. Um, and right. I approached this exclusively as X's and Y's. Oh. Um, it was just a, a massive data exercise from my perspective. Um, and importantly, you know, I made the reference to looking at 2006, 2007 as sort of one exercise and then 2008, 2009 as a separate exercise. That was critical because of, of course, the, mm-hmm. the financial meltdown that happened, mm-hmm. um, during that time frame. So the, the, the objective of separating those two pieces of analysis was really to kind of control for mm-hmm. uh, that issue. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, And you use the term vantage score. Is that like a credit score for the underbanked, essentially? Or? So,
1: vantage score is a a metric that was developed by the three main credit bureaus really as a um, potential alternative to the FICO score. Okay. Um, conceptually, it's very similar. It uses a lot of the same key pieces of information. Um, it does... Um, it, it is supposedly a, more uh, representative when you start talking about people that have thin files, limited data, mm-hmm. um, shorter, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. shorter histories. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is intended to accommodate that. Mm-hmm. M- more accurately than the FICO score. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. And what was the response in the marketplace and from the mm-hmm. Consumer Credit uh, Research Foundation to this uh, these conclusions?
1: Sure. So when I originally did the work, um, it was a, just really presented as a mathematical exercise, right? So here's here's this this series of, of data sets. Um, here's the basic research question. Um, you know, analyze the data and tell us what you found. And so I built these general estimating equations um, and did some distribution. Distributional analysis and wrote up the results and sent it to the Consumer Credit Foundation. And they said it comes to Consumer Credit Research Foundation. And they said, hey, this is really interesting. We'd like for you now to put this in the context of kind of an academic white paper. And we look and I did, and we loaded it up on the social science research network, um, which allowed me to then get feedback from kind of the academic community in advance of um, ultimately taking it to a peer-reviewed journal uh, and as I'm sure you can imagine, the, there was a lot of feedback, uh, really, from both sides. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some people thought this is really interesting. I'd like to better understand the math behind that. Right. And, of course, I was happy to... Uh, to have those conversations. Several people asked me for, for my programming code and I was happy to, to yeah. give them that as well. Um, you know, I, as a, as an academic, I'm all about replicating research, yeah. right? And replicating results. So I was happy to make my math available, happy to make my code available. Um, there were some other people, um, that took a look at it and, um, you know, rather than engage in kind of a mathematical scientific conversation, um, were much more interested in, in, um, maybe dismissing the results because it didn't necessarily fit within their expectations. Um, And so, that was frustrating. But for the most part, um, the conversations were engaging. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, terrific. And also in the uh, Business Chronicle, there was an article uh, last year about how you're expanding partnerships mm-hmm. for the center, yep. uh, including such companies as AT&T, Southern, Home Depot, Equifax, um, which is sort of new, I think, for yeah. academic institutions. Could sure. you comment a little bit on how you've been developing these partnerships? And yeah. does this kind of tie into your uh, your belief that you've got to apply the data, you've got okay. to use it, make, make data information, not sure. just, uh, you know
1: know analytics is is
0: that how is that the connection
1: yeah absolutely so i mean if we could kind of open the aperture a little bit and and talk more broadly just about university university slash corporate partnerships Um, You know, going back to the point that I made earlier that ultimately we are a public university and we're funded by the taxpayers, right? right? And so we have this, uh, this responsibility to make sure that the people that, the people that graduate from Kennesaw State are able to go back into the business community, uh, within the state of Georgia and, and, and add value. Right, and so to that point, um, w- you know, we need to constantly be in contact with the ultimate constituents, or if you will, our customers mm-hmm. um, of our of our um, p- products. Kind of with quotes around that, right? right? I mean, ultimately, we are producing a product, yep. and and that product, not to be crass, but ultimately, that product is graduates mm-hmm. of the university, and and we need to make sure that. Um, that the, the monies that the taxpayers of the state of Georgia are investing in Kennesaw State is creating a return on that investment by graduating people who have meaningful degrees, who can add value and can walk into the business community uh, and, again, help contribute to the economy of the state. So to ensure that, that we're able to do that regularly, right? Uh, we check in with the business community and, you know, certainly within Atlanta, you've got kind of the usual suspects, many of which you named. We also have a lot of small companies, a lot of small startups that we do a lot of work with who are regularly at the university Mm -hmm. and we're constantly checking in with them Mm -hmm. and making sure that what we're doing is ultimately meeting their needs. Um, and so back to kind of how this works with the, um, with the center. So if we're going to continue to graduate people, that have skills uh, that are in demand in the marketplace, the raw resource that we need from an analytics perspective in order to continue to fulfill that objective is well, data, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And it's re- it needs to be real data because mm-hmm. I can tell you that academic data is effectively worthless. Mm-hmm. Academic data that comes out of textbooks is, you know, a 100 observations and three variables and all fits nicely into an Excel spreadsheet and everything's clean mm-hmm. and everything generates these incredibly strong relationships and, and the students pretty much just have to point and click on a couple buttons. Um, and if that's the only data yep. that, that a student sees prior to graduation, then we're committing academic fraud. Yeah. Right? because yeah. because it's that's not, not real world yeah. right And so if we're going to ultimately create uh, and produce graduates who are able to walk into you know the, the five fortune 500s that are based in Atlanta uh, then then it needs to be a symbiotic relationship right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so those companies are going to have to give us some data mm-hmm. right um, that we can use in the classroom obviously um, purged of any personally identifiable information and and stripped of any um, any competitive information or anything that they um, that they deem to be. Um Competitively important, but anyway. But if we could get real data, real messy, hairy, complex, <laughs> difficult data, right, and use that for the purposes of teaching in the classroom, yeah. that creates real world skills, right? That creates meaningful skills that that then we can graduate and put them back out into the marketplace uh, here locally uh, and ensure that uh, that we're continuing to make Atlanta and the region um, economically competitive. And you know, to that point. You know, we hear this, uh, you know, this trend now is all about buying local and eating local. And I would just add to that and I would say hire local, Mm -hmm. right? I Mm -hmm. mean, there's no reason why uh, anybody that's looking for data science talent, in Atlanta, yep. there is no reason why they should be trying to import exotic kids from California. Right. Right. You don't have to go <laughs> to the West coast right. to find data science talent. Right. right? Because ultimately if, uh, if a kid has grown up in California and their family is in California and more importantly, his girlfriend is in California, yeah. you know, I don't know how long ultimately they're going to want to be here in Atlanta. Right. right? right. But if you can find kids, uh, from, from Kennesaw state and from Georgia tech, uh, And Georgia State, who are from Atlanta, they've gone to high school in Atlanta, their family is in Atlanta, and they have the skills, they're going to stay in Atlanta right yep. mm-hmm. so you know eat local buy local hire local mm-hmm.
0: and again it sounds like the most successful ones are those who can combine the the theory and the application of the data even though they may not have practical experience but it's 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 information practically applied well so let's it's talk not- about
1: that practical experience for a minute michael so you were you know talking about how the center fits into all of this yep. the center actually f- is is a very important source of practical experience for the students, yep. right? So, you know, when they make me the benevolent dictator of education, <laughs> um, I'm going to require that every yeah. undergraduate student is required to have some type of vocational training as part of their discipline, right? right? Um, you know, go out, get the internships, go out, have the co-ops, do the ad hoc project work. Even if it's unpaid, yep. just go out and get the experience, right? Mm-hmm. And so, for the, for for the small percentage of students at KSU – who can't get internships, which there aren't many. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we actually do an excellent job of ensuring that the students have internship experience. Um, but, but to subsidize that, um, we see a lot of students who will come through the center and, and they do project-based work through the center. Yep. Um, and so it, the majority, if not pretty close to all of the students at the undergraduate, master's, and PhD level who are coming out of the analytics programs at KSU have some kind of practical applied experience yep. with real world data. Mm-hmm. Um, either mm-hmm. either through the context of an internship or through a project uh, or through the center.
0: Wow. Now, we only have a few minutes before we wrap this up, but sure. I think our listeners would like to know a little bit more about the woman behind the, the center. The woman behind the PhD. And I know from our friendship at the Cathedral of St. Philip's that you, and I've been a student in your, in the adult Sunday school classes, that mm-hmm. you speak on a lot of interesting topics. Mm-hmm. And the one that I think was most relevant today that I'd like you to comment on was faith and big data. Sure. And you talk about, you know, volume, variety, and velocity. Right. And you even bring your grandmother into this story. And I sure. think uh, it would help our uh, listeners understand that, that there is also a spiritual dimension behind your work. So yeah, could you kind of sure. quickly summarize yeah, your so thoughts it's, on it's faith in, and big data?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So I, um, I talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I mean, I, I talk a lot, but I actually go out and I, I speak to a lot of different audiences, um, on the topics that we've discussed here related to big data analytics. And is the data that we work with today really substantively different? And, you know, what does the educational landscape look like? And, um, and it's interesting when I go to a lot of these companies and I do a lot of these talks. It's it's almost um, it's almost uh, every single time somebody will walk up to me either before or after and say, "I heard your talk, your podcast on faith and big data, and I really enjoyed it." And, and I think, wow, you know, of, of all the, you know, sort right. of intellectual machinations that I'm involved in and, and all the academic papers and talks that I've given, that's actually the one people want to talk about uh-huh. is faith in big data. Um, so just by quick way of context, uh, you know, when we hear this term big data with quotes around that. Um, the, and you,
0: what does that mean? Our viewers may, or our listeners may not quite understand what big data yeah,
1: means. Yeah. So, so um it, Maybe you could have me come back and I could do okay. a whole a whole right, piece we'll, on big data. We'll do but that. Um, but the short version of this is that big data is really defined as um, sort of this intersection of volume of of data, right? right? The size of the files, right. but but it's not just. Volume, yep. because if it was just volume, then we would have always had a big data challenge, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. In the sense that you know, back back, you know, a million years ago, um, I had a PC Junior, mm-hmm. right, when I was in high school, and I think that PC Junior had like 64k of memory, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, so can, I don't even, I, I, we don't right. even have anything anymore that's 64k, right. Right? right? Um, and and so ultimately, if somebody gave me a file that was 128 K, mm-hmm. I would have had a big data problem, right? Yep. So it's not just about it's not just about volume. It's not just about the size of the files. It's it's the intersection of the size of the files combined with the velocity mm-hmm. of the data. Mm-hmm. So we talk about things like, you know, Internet of Things, right? right? IoT or or um um you know other sources of data. You know, I, I made reference to Twitter and, and social media. The fact is that that, that type of data is being generated all the time, right? All the time, right? Right, and so you so you get this tsunami of data that's coming in every second of every minute of every hour of yep. every day, yep. all the time, right? Combined with the fact that it's big, yep. right? That yep. the that it's big volume, um, but then also you've got this this uh, this overlay, this interaction issue of variety. Mm-hmm. Um, so data doesn't come to us um, typically anymore as rows and columns. Data is coming to us as audio files, and it's coming to us as as pictures Mm -hmm. pixels Mm -hmm. right and it's coming to us um in text files and and these crazy you know types of unstructured files and and like i said being able to scrape social media stuff so you've got this this combination of volume and velocity and variety all together that is creating the problems or the challenges that we now see that that we've termed kind of big data and so in the context of this podcast, uh what I what I made reference to is the fact that um the the, the greatest number of um quote religious designations that or faith based designations that we see now in this country is none. Mm-hmm. Right? um mm-hmm. that, that people just aren't identifying with a faith right. and and so in this in the context of this podcast I, I really compared and contrasted this to my grandmother's time mm-hmm. And so my grandmother was born in 1901 and she was a a um, second generation Irish immigrant and she was in Elwood, Kansas and I and I talk about the fact that um, if I look at my life, defined today by volume, velocity, and variety. And I compare and contrast that to my grandmother's time. And she had her own challenges with volume, velocity, mm-hmm. and variety, right? Um, but I use that as a basis to kind of explain, you know, why we went from, um, you know, 70, 80, of people in my grandmother's time who Mm -hmm. attended church on a regular basis and really defined themselves in the context of a faith um, to where we are today, where the majority of people do not define themselves as having a faith. Um, and so just briefly, uh, it, you know, in the context again of, of velocity and volume and variety, um, you know, the, the volume is probably pretty obvious to people, right? right? You know, we talk about the volume of, of stuff we have to do and, and a lot of people kind of point to that as a basis for, for why people don't go to church anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and my argument is, uh, you know, just like with big data, it doesn't have anything to do with volume. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, my, my grandmother's time, you know, she didn't have the same type of volume that I do, mm-hmm. uh, or the same, um, types of things. Things that were contributing to the volume, but she was a teacher, and mm-hmm. she had to get to school an hour early because she ultimately had to um, start the fire in the fireplace to make sure that the schoolroom <laughs> was heated before yep. the kids got there. And for a lot of those kids, she had to make the lunches, uh, and then she had to teach the classes. And then when she got home, she actually had to, you know, make sure that she had knitted the blankets to make sure that her own children were warm uh, for the winter time. And and so, you know, she had her own challenges mm-hmm. related to volume. They were just different from. My own, and mm-hmm. so I don't know that that's the right mm-hmm. um, thing to point to in mm-hmm. terms of what we now call is the nun. Um, variety is another point um, that I make reference to in this podcast. So, if you look at kind of variety of faith, yep. right? Um, so, in my in my grandmother's community, everybody was an Irish Catholic immigrant. <laughs> everybody went to the local Catholic church. There was just no, um, you know, there was no variety uh, in her space and in her community. Um, and And there are pros and cons to that, right? So, in my own community, I'm, you know, my children are blessed to be going to school with kids who are Hindu and Muslim and... Jewish and Christian, and 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 across a wide variety of faiths. Um, but the, but then the challenge there is that. Um, you know, they don't go to church with the same kids they go to school with, right? right? right. Um, there aren't too many, um, kids who are Episcopalian in their class. Yep. Um, but the ultimate, um, you know, reality is that, that they're blessed. And I, and I think that they are stronger in their own faith because they're able to walk other kids' faiths, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so, so there's a benefit there to the variety. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that that's necessarily, um, something that, that is indicating the nuns, yep. uh, yep. either. Um, and then the last one is, is just, um, you know, speed, right? Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. velocity. Mm-hmm. And I, and I do think that that's something that's critical that is fundamentally different in our space relative to like my grandmother's space. And, and in that podcast, I really make reference to the fact that I can remember as a child going to my grandmother's house on like a Sunday and, uh, and she really, um, um, cr- uh, created and observed Sabbath right? So, I, we would go to their house and we would go to church and then we would come home and, and the television would would not be on, right? Mm-hmm. There's no television, there's no radio. And I remember having to sit at the table and having <laughs> to snap beans and having <laughs> to listen to my mother and my grandmother talking. And, you know, as an eight, nine-year-old yeah. kid, it was so boring, boring. Yeah. right? <clears throat> um, but, you know, there was, you know, I reflect on it now and it, it was actually incredibly beautiful and created this... Um, you know this very special, uh, you know, kind of spiritual foundation, and I don't know that my grandmother was doing that on purpose. I, th- I think it was just I- inherent and intrinsic as to how she lived her life. Right? Uh-huh. That you slow down,
0: yep, yep, and you
1: you have to create that um, that space for Sabbath, and and I think that that's something that we we struggle with, particularly in in our household, and and I would argue within the context of our community that um, that slowing down and really embracing a Sabbath, and that Sabbath doesn't necessarily have to be present on Sundays as we're running to lacrosse practice and soccer practice and you know everything else. It could be on you know Tuesday evenings or it could be on yep. you know Saturday mornings or, or whenever it is. But just that idea of slowing down is something that you really have to make time for.
0: That's a wonderful, wonderful example, Jennifer, of how you again are connecting, you know, data and applying it to other things whether it's business decisions or your faith mm-hmm. I mean that is that, that's really cool mm-hmm. the, the volume variety and velocity mm-hmm. that defines big data mm-hmm. you're applying it in to your spiritual life as well. And mm-hmm. to me, that's, you know, you're connecting the dots. I'm connecting the dots in, yeah. uh, of this person we know as Jennifer Priestley, both sure. a PhD and a Sunday school teacher yeah. and mother right. uh, and the uh, director of the uh, Center for Statistics and Analytical uh, Services at Kennesaw State. It is so exciting how you know, you've, you've connected all this in your life and we're going to have to wrap it up the, uh, this okay. morning, but it's been a wonderful, wonderful uh, 45 minutes. Do you have any final thoughts on uh, kind of what you've learned in this journey and building this center at Kennesaw?
1: Uh, you know, it's it's just, it's been wonderful. And uh, I can't speak highly enough of the students mm-hmm. at the university. You know, I, I go to, you know, cocktail parties and things and, and people oftentimes will make reference to sort of the millennial generation and how they don't work hard and how they have this sense of entitlement. And and that you know that I don't know that may or may not, not be true based upon their their specific experiences, but I have to say you know the the kids at KSU they work so hard and they have such an incredible work ethic, uh, and and we hear that over and over and over again from companies, and and that's why we have a hundred percent placement rate. Yep. You know the kids are smart, but ultimately they have a work ethic, yep. uh, and and they they come to work and they put their all into it every single day, and we see that in the classroom, um, and it's like you know when you send your own kids off to somebody else's house, you don't ultimately know how they're going to behave. Uh, But same thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so, you know, much like a proud parent, when when companies come back to us Mm -hmm. and say, you know what, I'd like to hire another kid like this one. um, You know, it's, it's great. I mean, ultimately, that's what makes me get to work every day.
0: So is that the most important metric of success for the center that you're director of? Essentially,
1: um, you or know, one that, of them. Just the the whole idea of interacting with the local business community to bring the data in, make sure that what we're teaching is aligned with the marketplace, make sure that these students are developing the skills that they need to contribute to the economy, to contribute to the business community, and then ultimately have those students come back and hire more students mm-hmm. as uh, as alumni coming back and hiring right. um, more students. You know, that, that's what it's all about.
0: I can't think of a better way to conclude our discussion this morning. Thank you very much, right. Dr. Jennifer Priestley.
1: Thank you, Michael. Okay.
0: Thank you for joining Michael Flock and his guests on the Capital Club Radio Show. For more information on future interviews, please visit us at flockfinance.com. This program is brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance, where clients are provided knowledge and insights to help them grow their business in complex and risky markets. Flock is more than a transaction.